0: Hello, good evening, and welcome to the TNT Show. I'm John Drummond, and I'm your host for the next 60 Minutes. As I often say, it's been another great day for British democracy. Tory Chris Patton, he of Hong Kong fame, he was the governor there for a while, said, we don't have a Conservative Party. What we have is an English nationalist government with a cult of Johnson. At least I think he said cult. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. We also hear from today from ex-diplomat Alex Hall, who said that for her, a low point was when she heard a senior British minister openly and offensively in front of a large US audience, dismiss the impact of a no deal Brexit on Irish businesses as just affecting a few farmers with turnips in the back of their trucks. Today, Alex Hall revealed that that minister is Liz Truss, the very minister who's looking after the Northern Ireland Protocol. Oh boy, you couldn't make it up. You know, tonight we have a special guest uh, and about a special subject too. We'll be talking claim of right, treaty of union, Scottish constitution, and much else besides. Uh, Tonight we are joined by uh, Sarah Sallars. The TNT show stands for the Nation Talks. So in many respects, this is your show. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. How are you?
1: Hi, I'm fine. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Good. Where are you joining us from tonight? Dunfermline. Oh, lovely. Lovely. As a long-time resident of uh, Kinross, Dunfermline is very familiar to me. So, Scottish constitutions, claim of right, all this sort of stuff. I mean, let me ask the basic question. Does Scotland have a constitution?
1: Well, for most of my life, I had no idea that Scotland did. And like most of us, if I thought about the UK constitution, I knew about Magna Carta or the Bill of Rights. But in the last few years, and particularly the last year, I along with a few others began excavating a a document called the Claim of Right Act that was passed in 1689. And the short version is when you examine the claim of right which claims that scotland has quote a fundamental constitution you then start looking at the comparable documents in the english corpus and the comparable provisions to see well how do they get their constitution what what, how, what, what is this uk constitution that starts with magna carta which happened in england and not in scotland and and how do they put it together and the first thing you find is that there are five countries in the world that have what's known as a written but uncodified constitution. What that means is that the constitution is contained in lots of different documents and lots of different arrangements and, and, and traditions and practices. And you have to be able to read those documents for, for two separate things. One, when it, when it comes down to something like the Magna Carta or the English Bill of Rights or our claim of right or declaration of our Birth or declaration of the clergy, there's something that the authors want to do. They specifically want an outcome. And then there are principles on which they're legitimizing those, those actions. And what goes into a constitution are the principles. So Magna Carta has all kinds of bump in it. It's a headache to read. And it's all about the rights of the nobility. But, you know, including by the way, um, some anti-Semitic stuff in there, which is really pretty horrible. But what it also has is this principle of limiting the power of a monarch in England, and that's what's remembered about Magna Carta. Now, there was a huge celebration for Magna Carta uh, when it was 800 years old. We didn't have anything like that for the Declaration of the Clergy for th- from 1310 or the Declaration of Our Arbroath. They make it clear that the there isn't just a limit on the power of a monarch, that the power of the the monarch is loaned, given by the people and can be withdrawn. That's the first time you find it. You find there are multiple, multiple iterations of that in other Scottish documents, which I won't go into now. But the claim of right then actually codifies these. It actually writes it down and it says you have to look at it and look at it and look at it. But eventually when you see it and you compare it Back to all these other things that have been done in Scotland, that that support what it's saying that this constitution existed. I have to tell you, it's absolutely beautiful. It, it's seen as a a kind of anti-Catholic rant. In fact, what they were doing was trying to protect Scotland from the from the influence of Roman Catholicism, and and that was for that time. And they were and they wanted to get rid of a monarch.
0: I wanted to ask you about that because I am concerned that the 1689 version. Uh, though I believe it was dropped in the 1989 <laughs> edition of the uh, claim of right, does make some rather startling contentions about the Protestant religion and, oh, and safeguards it, for that. It, it,
1: it absolutely does. But again, I would say, remember, when you're looking at constitutional documents, you look at effect, you look at context, and you look at principle. So if you take the English Bill of Rights, from which we get two very interesting um, constitutional uh, arrangements one is parliamentary privilege and the other is the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty which was actually invented under the english bill of rights it also goes on to say you can't have a catholic mp in the house of commons you can't have a no 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 catholic can be an mp and and the claim of right doesn't go that far
0: um, Interesting. now we've we've got a clip uh, of you talking about this
1: it was it was an unplanned speech at the alba conference now, we've been excavating that constitution and very in very short terms, what it says is, it is a crime in Scotland to claim that a parliament is sovereign over the people. It is a crime punishable by forfeiture of power. It is a crime to attack human rights. It is a crime to attack the right to, process, to protest in Scotland. It is a crime to give money to your pals. It is a, without parliamentary oversight. It is a crime to use the law to go after your political enemies power in Scotland is vested in the people and that we need to support the movement that is looking to create that grassroots tidal wave that says to the whole of Scotland and the whole of the world and the international courts, this is our law. This is the crime that's been committed against us, and we will, thank you very much, be reconvening the assembly of the people that was known as the Convention of the Estates, putting this government on trial, and when they are found guilty, sacking them. So, please.
0: You you almost get a round of applause when you say, let's sack the government. (laughs) You get a bigger round of applause if you say, and let's off with their heads, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. I, right. down no down. I mean, it's uh, every speech I ever made when I wanted to reach out to the audience, I always criticise the, the government. But it, but seriously, I mean, there's some serious points in here about, about governance. And I'm so glad you said what you said because let me tell you what my experience has been here. I actually went to the, the ed, Scottish education grouping, spoke with some of the civil servants, the top civil servants, and said, look, I think we ought to have lessons at school on the constitution in Scotland. This was many years ago. And they listened to me, uh, I thought thoughtfully, uh, I was probably wrong in thinking that. And then subsequently wrote to me and said, we can't do that because it's political. I mean, I'd spent half an hour stressing the fact that it wasn't political, it was apolitical. It was about educating people how to protect their basic rights and why that protection was important. In the light of present day events, that was probably prescient. But anyway, talking about constitutions in Scottish schools that at that time was deemed to be political and therefore unacceptable. Uh, this is that time, by the way, when we had a Scottish government. So this, this wasn't a whole bunch of <laughs> Labour apparatchiks saying, look, we're not going to do this. These were people who were reporting to, to SNP ministers. Anyway, that, that's, that's where that ended. However, things have moved on since then because some of the main movers and shakers have picked up on your point about the claim of right. Let's take a little look at Ian Blackford, I think last week, in the House of Commons, addressing this very point.
2: We're not seeking the Prime Minister's permission. The only permission we need, the only permission we will ever need, is the democratic permission of the Scottish people. And let's not forget that it's the people of Scotland who hold sovereignty, and he might want to listen to this, because let's not forget the legal opinion in the case of McCormick versus The Crown at the Court of Session in 1953, when yeah. Lord Cooper stated that the principle of the unlimited sovereignty of Parliament is a distinctly English principle that has no counterpart right. in Scottish Constitution. Yeah. Yeah. It is, Mr. Yeah. Speaker, unquestionably the, the right of those in Scotland. Scotland to determine their own future. Those rights were enshrined in the claim of right that was so instrumental in delivering our devolved Parliament and is the case today as we seek to exercise our rights in an independence referendum. Let me remind the words to the Prime Minister of Parnell, who used to sit on these very benches. No man has the right to fix the boundary of the march of a nation. No man has the right to say to his country, thus far shall go and no further. Mr Speaker, time and time again, the people of Scotland have spoken, and they want a choice, the choice to choose our own future. They spoke in the last Hollywood election, and they spoke again last Thursday. And the longer that Scottish democracy speaks, the louder it will get if the Conservatives want to stand in the way. If they want to try and deny democracy, then they should well be warned. Democracy will sweep them away, just as their party was swept away last week.
0: (laughs) Powerful, powerful words. And uh, clearly your comments at the conference had some, uh, some impact or maybe this is something which Ian has been thinking about for some time. Either way, it doesn't makes no odds because he's effectively echoing uh, much of what you said. Yeah. He didn't get round to talking about uh, a constitution for Scotland, but he did endorse the, the claim of right, uh, the, uh, the sovereignty of the Scottish people, uh, yeah. both of which you had uh, remarked on. There is an interesting thing here, though. We, we have this odd situation, and I appreciate your help on teasing this one out, Sarah. On the one hand, the Scottish people are sovereign, but on the other hand, they have to operate at the beck and call of the Westminster government, and that includes Ian Blackford. How do you explain that?
1: Right, well, okay. I'm not good at making this really short, but I will do my very, very best they're not supposed to. It was never supposed to be that way. We had two incompatible constitutions at the, the time of the Treaty of Union. We had the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, which came into place when the power vested in the monarch was taken over by the English Parliament. And in Scotland, we had the doctrine of popular sovereignty by which power is vested in the people and only loaned to government conditionally under a compact. It's a beautiful compact, by the way, it puts the common good at the at the heart of the objective of government. So how did you take these two? How could you take this feudal pyramid, top down, you know, the, the, the most privileged at the top and, and people that don't count at the bottom, um, you know, system and reconcile it with one which is much more horizontal? which is based on a very, very old set of of reciprocal rights and obligations. Mm -hmm. You can't make them, you can't make them match. You can't, you can't make both, uh, you know, uh, into one. So what they did was, and and it's a really interesting story. I mean, there was real kind of midnight riders carrying posts from the commissioners to the, you know, to the elders of the Kirk of Scotland and and the nobles in, you know, sitting, considering what they were, as, as the deadline uh, approached what they did was they agreed that the treat that the cons- constitution in england would remain and the constitution in scotland would remain and that was a cobbled up you know compromise
0: how can that be so
1: well they put a provision into the treaty of condition and you can read it in the preamble hmm. um, it, it wasn't always immediately available and it and it hasn't always been obvious because quite a lot of our texts were lost uh, you know a a lot of the context was lost um, a lot of it quite deliberately but in the preamble to each of the acts of union which by the way are acts of ratification they ratify the treaty and bring it into force they can't exist without the treaty and they certainly can't replace it Um, there is this condition that a scottish act passed in 1706 which specifically mentions the claim of right had to be inserted and ratified along with all of the articles of the treaty as a condition of both the treaty and of the continuation of the union. The union could not continue if this did not remain in place. What subsequently happened was that, um, and, and I haven't, as I put it, excavated how this happened, but eventually it was represented as being, well, this was about preserving the Presbyterian Kirk in Scotland and nothing else. And so as long as the queen takes her oath coronation oath, you know, and, and the oath to uphold the the, the the Church of Scotland, they are upholding the condition for the treaty. That's not true. Uh-huh. It, wasn't, it wasn't what was understood at the time. Um, the spy, William Defoe, and and one of the earliest journalists, um, was very much in favour of the Union, uh, wrote about this, saying Scotland, basically, Scotland, Scots, 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 Scottish people should be very happy because their constitution will remain in place They're, as to the limits of government and obedience it was very well understood that what was happening was that the condition for the union continuing, for the treaty being being concluded and the union continuing was that the claim of right would you know, be
0: upheld. There were some safeguards built into the act of union. Yes. Uh, however, the reality is, for all practical purposes, these have been effectively ignored. Yeah. Uh, because we have what we have. And, yeah. uh, and I know for a fact, because we discussed this in an earlier programme, that the Treaty of Union was breached uh, within a few years of its signing. It was. And, yes. and no, there were no repercussions. No. Uh, and the result has been since then, it's been breached on a number of other occasions. And again, there have been no repercussions. So the basic point is, however it was used or abused, uh, as you might put it, the reality is we are where we are. Yeah. And, uh, and where we are is this odd situation Where there's a significant number of people in Scotland, including you and I, who who would maintain that the Scottish people are sovereign, but the reality is that they are governed under a completely separate constitutional precept, which is that um, the Parliament, the the Crown and Parliament, is sovereign. Yeah. So these two things cannot exist together. I mean, they're incompatible. Uh, But. The reality is they've worked. This is the great irony here. This system has been in operation now for over three hundred years. How do you explain that? It, you know, it. I think the person who would
1: tell you what it worked really means is is probably Alf Baird. What has worked is a systematic colonial oppression by a numerically superior um, state apparatus over a, a numerically smaller um, okay. Okay. colony so it, it hasn't worked for Scotland but but you made a point about the treaty and the thing is there are certain provisions in the Treaty of Union that allow Westminster to, to alter its provisions and some of them had to be altered you know you can't keep the price of salt where it was mm. 300 years ago but then as again that, that that's effect and, and, and not principle but the point about the claim of right and the point about the fact that it was understood that this was a constitutional arrangement in Scotland yeah. is that it's a precondition. It's yeah. not part of the treaty. They've, they've shoved it in as, with Article 25, but if all you have to do is read the preamble. It is not part of the treaty. Yeah, It is the condition on which the treaty is concluded and the, the, which the union may remain. Yeah. We have um, an international system of recognition for national constitutions, which Scotland's absolutely meets. The claim of right is the only constitutional document in the United Kingdom which states, therefore, has a, a written version of a constitution. It states that there is a fundamental constitution.
0: Okay, okay. I think what, you, what you've said is dramatically new, because I remember uh, Neil McCormick, I met with Neil McCormick when I first became interested in constitutions, and he had done some terrific work on a, a constitution, not he used the claim of right as a kernel. He didn't claim that was a constitution. He said we'd have to we'd have to develop a constitution because the claim of right is is, is by necessity is a restricted document. It only deals yeah. with certain component parts. It does deal with the essential principle, the precept, I mean, the mainspring is that the people are sovereign, yeah, and they, and they can get rid of an administration they don't like. So there's yes. no security of tenure uh, right. in Scotland, but it's a million miles from being what most countries would regard as a constitution. Uh, well, it,
1: the claim of right by itself um, doesn't doesn't um, present a whole constitution. What it does is it states that there is one, that there ha, that there are fundamental principles, and that there are things which cannot um, okay. exist okay. Out, out be done out with that. It also, um, because of the 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 nature of the body that passed it it also provides a a route if you like to re-establishing that now what we then have to do and what i've been working on i'm hoping other people will work on is looking at starting with the kernel as you say which is in the in the claim of right and looking at all the other documents that expand and that fill in so that you have this, like the notion of the common good
0: and... You're preaching to the choir. I'm a great believer in a Scottish constitution. I've been trying to get one for years. Mm -hmm. Uh, But my concern is not so much whether I get a constitution or whether you get a constitution or we all get a constitution. My larger concern is getting any constitution that's developed, uh, acknowledged and recognised as such. Now, in fairness uh, to the, the Scottish administration back in 2014, they did accept the notion, the idea of an interim constitution. They said in the Future of Scotland document that they put before the people at the referendum in 2014, they said, here is an interim constitution. It couldn't be a full constitution because constitution did the endorsement of the people. You yes. can't say the people are sovereign and then have one group of people produce a constitution and say, well, forget the sovereignty. We've done it and you don't have to bother your pretty little heads about it. So, it had to be an interim constitution which awaited the endorsement of, of the people after independence. And the reason that was there was because it's very dangerous to have uh, an independence um, movement that's successful if there isn't already a constitution of some form in place because it allows the executive uh, to behave any way it wishes. Um, and not, I suspect you and I would recognize that, but I suspect a lot of people in power right now would find that an unusual thing to hear but it, it's a basic reality if there are no rules no constraints and you become the executive literally there are no constraints on you so yeah you know.
1: absolutely well the, the the thing is i you know i keep coming back to this that even what we all you know what what we don't know about is what we already have and for any country that has been colonized um part of healing is remembering who you are good point you know, how did we get to where we are how how do we have these particular values that we think of as being Scottish, this this kind of notion of, 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 yeah. of equality and, okay. and justice for all and so okay. on? So when you look and you look and see what is there and, and you take the, the claim of right and you expand that kernel, you find this, this absolutely beautiful, long-developed set of principles that are based on, as I said, reciprocal rights and obligations, that are based on the common good at the heart of things, yeah. that are yeah. based on... And not only that, on a set of checks and balances. Now that is what gives us both a route towards independence, or certainly to self determination. And 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 not only that, but exactly what you're talking about—that yeah. as we take that route, so we build in the kind of constitutional provisions okay. that look after the people that really do mean that the that any government and any parliament can be called to account. Yeah,
0: yeah, and well, you know. Uh, again you're preaching to the choir I, I wrote a piece on the sunday national at the weekend saying applauding the the, the norwegians for their independence day is not called independence day it's called constitution day may 17th they celebrate the constitution i know that from personal experience because i went to harriet Watt university and i was surrounded by uh, norwegians quarter of the student population was from norway and it was astonishing for me to turn up at the the university on May 17th to be surrounded by all these drunks uh, at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> a bunch of people I thought were even more dour than the Scots. Drunk as <laughs> lords, because of a, a constitution.
1: Yes, absolutely, because of a constitution, because there's nothing more powerful. You see. Um, you yeah. know, and, and and I will just keep saying this. I'm 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 going to send it out when I'm happy with it. And I've had people with more poetry in their souls to to go over it, but Scotland has when you when you give parity to Scotland's documents and arrangements with those that are given to the English ones. Scotland has the most beautiful constitution, the most beautiful recognition of the value and the dignity and the equality of human beings. It's just remarkable.
0: Yeah, no, it really is. I, am sure that all of that is the case. And I want to move us on because we've got a bunch of questions here, and many of them pertain to okay, you, you say these things are all in place, blah. but the reality is at some stage you have to you have to deal with what you're going to do as a result of having Absolutely. this. Yeah. So, yeah.
2: Where,
0: where do you go? Essentially, for, for me, it boils down to the, the, the basic question, which is there's a, a difference here between constitutional politics and constitutional law. Yes. And yeah. what we've been talking about is constitutional politics, i.e. we have we have these documents which are laudable, Uh, we feel they're superior to your documents, but we are being run under the aegis of your documents and we want to replace those documents with our documents because they represent our values, they speak to our passions and our interests and our aims and our goals in a way that your documents just don't. So that's it in a nutshell, okay. The question is how you get to that point from where we are just now.
1: Well. The lovely thing about uh, about history is that sometimes it turns out n- not to be such ancient history. The body that passed the claim of right was known as the Convention of the Estates, which in modern terms is the Assembly of the Communities of Scotland. It was not part of the Parliament. It developed entirely separately from the Parliament. Its Its history shows that it actually represented The lenders of power, the people, not the borrowers of power, the government. When the union took place, it was, by the way, not a standing body. It was called as necessary. That's really important. It was called when needed. When the Scottish Parliament dissolved itself, it had no authority to dissolve the Convention of the Estates. The union doesn't touch on it. The treaty doesn't touch on that. And and, And the provision the condition of the Union is that the claim of rights stays in part, force. The body that passed it was the Convention of the Estates, not the Parliament. That, too, remains. So, in theory, Scotland has the, the protected right to recall the Convention of the Estates, which acted mm-hmm. as a tribunal in 1689, and it can be done in precisely the same way
0: that it well, was done well, then. Let, let's, let's just think, let's go with that, because that, that's... Sounds interesting. Let's say that uh, a bunch of people get together and they convince other folks there ought to be a convention of the states to take a look at the constitution and to to derive a new constitution which embodies the sovereignty of the people and an independent Scotland. Why should anyone at Westminster pay the slightest heed to that?
1: Well, what happens is you have, first of all, um, it, and it isn't just a bunch of people. First of all, you have to make
0: sure that what you what have the, to... Sorry, pay... let's just say it's the majority. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to use that term, pe- pe- right. pe- uh, that's that the way it would be seen from London. Now what
1: what, what, it, what the Convention of the Estates did, <clears throat> actually that con- committee then, the convention then became the next parliament. But what it would ha- do is, in the absence of a eligibility, what it has to do is it has to actually have a hearing exactly the way the other, the first, the okay. revolutionary convention okay. did, where okay. it looks at whether the constitution of Scotland and the provisions um, over popular sovereignty and so on have been violated. And the, the penalty for that is forfeiture of power. If that happens, and if that convention is strong enough, that is, it contains elected representatives um, from across the bodies of Scotland. Okay. it It has people elected on a kind of jury system to it. It right. then it then has in law the authority to say, right. "All right."
0: I hear what you're saying; it makes a lot of sense. But let me just tackle two practical points of may. One is, how do you obtain this representative group of people that has that can claim authority to speak on behalf of the entire Scottish uh, population? Say, for example, well, say for example, uh, the Tories and the Lib Dems and Labour say, "We want no part of this. It's it's a it's a separatist scheme." We regard it as a nonsense. I say this with some yeah. some authority because I'm looking today at the number of local authorities in Scotland which have a majority of SNP members but are going to be run as a uh, as a, a unionist uh, a unionist entity. Uh, so the, the, it looks to me as if folks like that, with that predisposition, are hugely unlikely to join any convention of the states or whatever it's called. Yeah. So where would you get the authority from?
1: Well, there's two there's two things. That, that have to be addressed. First is the job of persuading um, as many people as possible, as many of the people as possible, and as many elected representatives. And when I say elected representatives, I mean, you know, anybody who has a constituency, that includes trade union representatives, that includes councillors, that includes which would have been the, the, the borough representatives previously. Um, it includes MPs who are, who are on board, or SMPs who are on board. But what you're convening, isn't a parliament It's it's a tribunal and it's as if you're 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 bringing charges and you have to have a body with the authority to hear those charges and to consider what the implications are now the two things work hand in hand if you have a the the expressed will of the majority of people of scotland then you have the authority to convene we interestingly still have an organization which has the constitutional authority to trigger a convention of the estates, to recall it, not to to, 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 to dominate it or to run it, but to recall it. And that, believe it or not, is the Church of Scotland because of its constitutional standing and the claim of right. So we have a trigger organisation, if it could be persuaded. We have the will, the the sovereignty of the Scottish people, which we would have to get their, their permission. But we have something much more important. We have a crisis in Scotland. We have children suffering from the diseases that come with malnutrition we have homelessness that we have never seen before we have people who will die this winter because they cannot heat their homes we have parents who cannot manage to feed and clothe their kids and it is going to get worse and under these circumstances it somebody has to say to the people of Scotland we can offer you a route because if we put this on you know on public trial if we do this, and we find a way to do this, okay. we put back a constitution that says that the that the suffering of the people of Scotland is absolutely unacceptable for any government. That what has to be done is that we have to do something about this. So okay. you know, we called the group Salvo for two reasons: that we're the campaign Salvo. Salvo was an act offered by the um, it, it was done by the Scottish Parliament from 1592, acknowledging the pop, the sovereignty of the people. Anything that they were doing that was in violation of 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 civil rights and liberties, or the common good, could be challenged under the under salvo, and that became a statute in 1663. And a salvo is also saving, so that's why the group that is that I'm part of that is pushing
0: right. this salvo. Right. I hate to take us back to this sort of whole cold hard facts, so, because I'm I'm broadly sympathetic to what you're saying, but I'm deeply aware of the of the practicalities. The practicalities yep. are. Uh, however much you claim the authority of the people, you have to have some mechanism at the end of the day that says that the people accept what you yes. maintain. Yes, that's for, a, yes. For, 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 and that's that's a big challenge. Yes, the second challenge, which I think is even greater, and I would like your views on this. You have to convince, at some stage, hopefully sooner rather than later, the international community that you have. The authority to make the statements you're making and yes. and to put in place the arrangements. Because if you don't have that, I can guarantee you that this will be a short-lived infant. But it will not survive the rigors of being exposed to the the vicissitudes and the and the strange winds of international opinion unless you've got that on board. Yes. Now you can't do that overnight. You, no, it, it's well. I mean, you you'd have to have a bunch of people out there spread across the world saying, look, this is legitimate. And I can tell you that the UK government is never going to agree to facilitate that process unless unless you negotiate. So the question is, and it always resolves, every secessionist or separatist group always has to face this essential quandary, which is you have two choices in becoming independent. One is you can declare UDI or you can negotiate. It sounds to me like what you're describing is a form of UDI. In other words, you go down this route, you legitimise it with the Scottish people, and then you say to the world, that's it, you need to accept this, because we've spoken. Have I misstated what you're saying?
1: Almost, because you see, the thing is, we can demand that they return our constitution. We can say to Westminster, you are in breach. Right. And we have and we what we plan to do is to to really move, get this movement. And we may or may not succeed, but it it offers the hope of real change in Scotland. And we need. So what we do is we can put it to Westminster. You're in breach. If the union is to continue, you have to put the Constitution back in Scotland. They acknowledge that. They also acknowledge that we have to put in place the old mechanism. Okay. Okay. And that has to be properly authorised. Or they can refuse, and we can go to the international community and say, we have a constitution, here it is.
0: Yeah, okay. Let me tell you what I think the the international community will say. They will say, you need to go back to London and have a chat, because we are not going to take your word on this. We need their assurance that what you're saying is legitimate. They're not going to give you that.
1: They're not that tied to, particularly now, to to the will of Westminster. Any country, any nation can appeal and can say, under the existing um, criteria, do we have a constitution here and do we have the right to have it in place? We've already had conversations with people in different um, European countries, including EU um, officials, who had no idea, absolutely no idea, that Scotland had a constitution as easily demonstrated and evidenced as the English constitution.
0: Sarah, you you and I are singing from the same hymn sheet here. I'm I'm not disputing any of that. I'm, I'm simply taking us to the practical points that have to be addressed in order for what you're saying to become effective. And what I'm suggesting to you is there's only two routes. You either go down the Rhodesian route or the Irish route, for that matter. In 1919, Ireland withdrew and said, enough's enough, we're through, that's it. But that was UDI, I mean that that was not a negotiation. It only only became successful when they sat down with the London government and agreed a package. And that package included dividing up their own country, but that was the price they had to pay at that time. It
1: it ended up being a bit of both. And I think the, the, the thing to remember is that if you want to negotiate, you need to negotiate from a position of strength. I agree. So our strength lies in the fact that we have the right to provisions in scotland that require westminster to admit it's not sovereign in scotland that require checks and balances and mm-hmm. and, and and a body of oversight yeah. that keeps
0: parliament i i, 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 I got that but
1: this- what i'm saying is what we hope is to create the demand as su- such an overwhelming demand yeah for what is legitimately ours that
0: I, I agree i agree with all of that i, I i'm simply wanting to explore the practicalities of it and the practicalities i mean for example There's a lovely example in Australia of exactly what we're talking about, where you have these two contrary forces in many respects. And before everyone jumps down my throat, please have a thought here (laughs) that I'm not being dismissive or in any way denigrating anything that we've discussed tonight. But there is an example here from Australia. It's the condition that the Australian Aborigines find themselves in, and it's this. The land belongs to them categorically, the land belongs to the Aborigines, but it's in the possession of somebody else. So to return it, either the law needs to change, i.e. that the law recognizes, as you say, that the Aborigines are sovereign and it's their land, or or the law must be overturned. In other words, the Aborigines say, we're not gonna do this, not gonna do that, UDI. Yeah. That's it, we're not gonna, we want no truck with you ever, ever, ever again. You've got a bunch of people in London saying, no, no, the best way forward, or you declare UDI. If you're, going, if you're going to try and work out the best way forward, that's what it likes to hear. It doesn't want hassle. It's got Ukraine on its mind, it's got the remains of COVID, it's got Russian expansionism, it's got a raft of things out there. The last thing it wants is a bunch of people who form a little part of a small island of the west of (laughs) Europe saying, we want you to get involved in our. They're not gonna do it. They will only do it, I suspect, if there is some major schism of some kind which forces them to pay attention and we saw what happened in Ireland when that took place. Or they say, look, you're negotiating. We like that. And we'll, we'll support you in that negotiation perhaps. Which way is it for you? What would you prefer to see happen?
1: I think there is going to be negotiation. and people, people kind of play brinkmanship to the last minute. I don't think there's ever going to be any way where there isn't negotiation. However, I think that what we have to be prepared for is to, unless you're prepared to say, we will go the whole way. Westminster is not going to let go of Scotland. It is not going to happen. People don't give up. Power doesn't give up power until it's forced to. So if we have to push it all the way to what is effectively UDI, then that's what we'll have to do. But you can be absolutely guaranteed that if it gets to that point, they will sit down and they will negotiate. They'll have to. We'll have to. You know, it's there's just no there's no question about that. But there is no path that Westminster puts in front of this, you know Scotland or its government that is actually going to lead to them giving up the resources of Scotland, its water, its offshore energy, its oil fields, its exports, its contribution to the national debt. It's not going to do it unless we force it to. And it's just, I think we just have to get real. And what we do have is a route to do that. And the, the beautiful thing about that route is that it is an entirely democratic route. You're not talking about replacing the parliament. You're not talking about a few people making you know, decisions for others. You're talking about bringing up what the law says in Scotland and applying it, and it's just that simple.
0: My concern is it's not simple. My concern is that it appears simple, but it ain't. And the reason I think that is because if you're negotiating anything, the, the best way to negotiate is to put yourself in the position of the other, per- the other guy or the other yes. woman and yeah. say, what is it they want? Because yeah. if I if I can figure out what they want, then I can put in place something that might appeal to them, which will allow me to have what I want. It's yeah. negotiation so, one one. So, so, so I'll put that question back to you. What so, do you think Westminster wants? I'll tell you what Westminster, I think, will say. First of all, they will say, we don't want any truck with any of this, but the fact that they're around the table, would suggest otherwise. Because they're not going to get around the table unless they feel that it's more damaging not to be around the table. Uh, But uh, let's assume they're around the table and there's a discussion about what they want. They're almost certainly going to want Trident to stay. They're almost certainly going to insist on cheap energy. They're almost certainly going to insist on cheap water. They'll essentially have to recognise that all the stuff they said before was not accurate, i.e. they need Scotland desperately. Yeah. (laughs) And that will be a chastening experience, I expect. but that's what, that's what politicians are good at. You and I, would, I suspect, would be hopeless at this because we, we would say, come on, I said to you last week I wouldn't do this. Now I'm saying I, I'm going to do it and it's an article of faith for me. You and I can't do I suspect we can't do that. Politicians find it dreadfully straightforward. Say,
1: well, Sadly, you know, yes, it's worrying. That's but
0: that's yeah. Grow up. It's real politic, you know. And, and so they would negotiate. And there would probably be a, probably be a, a process towards independence, i.e. it would Westminster would agree that in five years' time. The reason I say all of that is because that's precisely what they did with most of the Commonwealth. Yes. (laughs) They said, they said, okay, you're leaving. So anyway, we have we have this we have this document here, which we used in Canada, which we used in Sri Lanka, which, and we'll just change the name at the top.
1: (laughs) Fill it in the fill in the blank here. Fill in the blank.
0: Yeah. Uh, of course, it's not going to be as straightforward as that because there's entanglements that don't exist when they they talked about Barbados, when they talked about you know Canada, when they talked about Australia. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, you know, back in 1867, uh, Westminster, and uh, the Statute of 1932, uh, 34, you know, it, it, it took that length of time for for things to happen. I'm not suggesting it's going to take that length of time. <laughs> way we're all successful. But we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that this could be a lengthy process. It,
1: could, it could. You know, I think I think it's also an urgent process because you know we're we're talking about what happens when we get round the table. We're not going to get Westminster to the table until we have something very powerful to to force its hand. We saw how the referendum in 2014 was run. And without anything going on behind the scenes. The, the, the breach of the Edinburgh agreement, the media loading, it, under no international standards, whatever, was that referendum conducted in a fair and decent manner, and nor should its result have been binding in any way because it didn't meet international standards for a fair referendum. We'll never get a fair referendum. We know that. We know that until we have something powerful and, and that cannot be ignored to force them to the table, they will not come to the table most of us have spent a lifetime looking at how do we do that? How would we do that? Back in 2014, at the end of the, 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 you know, after the referendum, Alex Salmond said something very interesting. He said, it's up to the people of Scotland now, which would have been a very silly thing to say if he hadn't meant more than, you know, would everybody just been to vote? That that was the the, supposedly the, the people of Scotland. And that's what started me on this, on, uh, on investigating that, he, that yeah. he was talking about something. We have something. We have popular sovereignty. We may not know exactly how to use it in, in every possible way, but we know that it's there. We don't know how we don't know how quickly or how powerfully it could come into into in, into its own. But we have to try because we that is something we absolutely have. We absolutely own that. And we have something to be proud of. And if we start there, that most Scots have no idea that they have a democratic tradition that puts the English one to shame, that they have principles that have helped form who we are, that we need to begin living, you know, Uh, we've always looked after one another. That's that's absolutely inherent in that, in, in, in our constitution, putting that back into place beginning to demand everything that that says, will create, it, we talk about political reality, but you know, we're talking from where we are. We're talking from what we've seen and we're used to, and that's how it is. But when things change, that changes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can I can see all of that. And I, I, I mean, it sounds entirely laudable, but at the end of the day, you do have these practical difficulties, but you know, I, When we interviewed people from Scotland and Europe a couple of weeks ago, one of the interesting things they said, and and by the way, one of these folks was from uh, from Rome uh, and the other one was was from Hamburg. And they both said the same thing. Scotland needs to be more assertive. You, you, You guys put up with a lot and you need to be more assertive. You've got a fine country. You've got great values. Uh, you've got so much going for your very well-educated student base, for example. You need to say so. You need to tell people this is the case. And you're absolutely right. One of the elements of, a, of society that appeals to people outside of it is what its values are. In other words, you need to be very clear to people both inside and out that these are the things we stand for and these are the things we will not stand for. And now we will not stand for bigotry, we will not stand for racism, and yeah. we will not stand for being hostile to, necessarily to to reasonable immigration. And that that's a, that's a declaration, if you like. That's yeah. saying to yeah. the world. But the, the first place you have to have that conversation is with yourself, because if one part of you is saying something very different to the other part, then people quite reasonably say, well, I'm not sure what you stand for. <laughs> because, yeah. you, know, you know, I spoke to Sarah and she said this, I spoke to somebody else, they said that, you know. So you, you have to write it down. And you have to be very clear.
1: Which is where to... which is where having a constitution that we can look at comes in. Now, you know, I, it, that wouldn't be a, a constitution for, you know, if we, if we had independence tomorrow, the old constitution that is there in all of those documents wouldn't be, that would be it. But we but we can take it now, we can take it back and give it to people, we can say this is Scotland's constitution. This is we can begin learning what that is, demanding that, and building from that. And that's I agree
0: with that. I agree with that. that. What I don't agree with is I don't think you have a constitution. You're 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 on the way, but there needs to be something more.
1: We have absolutely got as much of a constitution as England has. Uh, and, and Canada and Israel and the other two countries uh, uh, absolutely uh, do. Uh,
0: yeah, you've set a very low bar here, I'm afraid.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it is a low bar, but, le- but let me tell you, when you see it, I'll I'll send it to you. I'll send it, I'll give you a preview. It really is extraordinary how by, much. By, is all this. Means,
0: by all means do that. There's already a document around. It's in it's, it's in the uh uh Scotland's future, uh, which Alex Salmon put together back in 2014. <laughs> Uh, and anyone who's looking for an interim constitution, it's there. It needs updated, I'm, no doubt, I'm sure by now because the passage of time. But there's, I mean, it's not as if the Scottish government didn't go in. It, they didn't go in with a blank sheet of paper in 2014. They said to people, "This is what we stand for." You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's elementary, frankly, and you need to do it. We're, sorry, we're, we're almost running out of time here. We've got about four or five minutes left. Sarah, is there anything that you would like to talk about that we haven't dealt with up until now?
1: Only the, the big thing is that we need to remember that we are not familiar with our own history. We're not familiar with our own constitutional development. We're not familiar with the idea that we have had... We all know the English constitution. We don't know how we know it. It's called the UK constitution now. But but we've absorbed it sort of by osmosis. We need to absorb our own. It changes everything. And we need to remember that the, the whole notion of what we call political reality... The whole the, that whole landscape can change in a heartbeat. Remember the labor movement. Remember the, the 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 suffrage movement. There have been so many big changes in the whole way that we see the world, and we look back from there and we say, "How did we ever see it any any differently?" You know. So we're a, we're a hurt nation. We've we've had our history and our character and our constitution, and you know, all wiped from from memory. We start here and there's no telling where we can go if we remember that, the, that, that this, is, this is the road we're on, the road back to sovereignty, the road back to a compassionate, caring Scotland in which government is at the service of the people, directly answerable to the people and where the welfare, the good, the interests of the people are the sole, if it, or, or at least almost the sole object of government. That's where we're going. We can do this.
0: I'm construing what you're saying, that you rule out one of the options that I posited earlier, which is that UDI, you're not interested in UDI. You, you, you might negotiate settlement. To
1: be honest, at the moment, we call ourselves Salvo because our people, our country, needs saving. Mm. And whatever means we need to use peacefully to save our people, we need to take.
0: Well, my, my suggestion for what it's worth is that uh, at some early stage, you look at the whole UDI thing and how well or unwell it's worked elsewhere, and and come to a conclusion on that. Because I have to tell you that, that however laborious it is and how, however tedious it is, it's far better to take people with you than otherwise. Uh, that that's the only counsel I would I would offer, particularly if you're looking for uh, something which is going to be permanent, long-standing, stable, uh, because whatever happens. We have to have an arrangement, uh, a deal, if you like.
1: We do. There's no.
0: There's no doubt. We with the, we other, deal. With we the feel. other nations and countries in this these islands, this, yeah. this archipelago, and, and we need right. to do that.
1: Yeah, you're right. I, I just think we need to get into a position of such strength that when we come to negotiate, we're negotiating from that position.
0: Yeah, I I hear what you're saying because that's the way negotiations tend to work. I mean, back in 2014 it was clear that David Cameron accepted the Scottish Government's position that they had complete and utter authority to carry out a referendum. The thing, though, about referendums in the UK is that none of them are binding. They are purely, they have to be endorsed by the the constitutional authorities, however those
1: are. Let me just point out that if the people in Scotland are sovereign, which they are by law in Scotland, then there is no such thing as a consultative referendum in Scotland because if the people speak
0: they've spoken end of yes but that that, that would be unique in the way things have done in this island up until now even the brexit referendum w- was purely advisory it then became endorsed and then changed to, be- to become a hard brexit as we went along so I, i'd i'd be very careful about it. No,
1: well, I'm simply telling you the law. The law states that the people are sovereign over their government, and the government answers to them Understand. to the people in Scotland. Which but, means that, in law, de jure, if not in not de facto, yeah. Scotland well, is like not supposed to be pulled out of Britain,
0: You have to convince the possessors that that is acceptable. That's the difficulty. That's the challenge. It's, it's been super, Sarah. I'm very grateful to you. If you want to come back at some stage once things are up and running, and and tell us some more. Uh, feel free I'd love to Uh, thank you yeah it's been really great thank you again well that's our time is almost up Uh, big thanks to Sarah and a big thanks to all of you for joining us tonight